If you got your Bible, we'll be in Romans. We are studying Romans this, uh, this quarter. I'm excited about this study. I was thinking just now, I was trying to think of times that I misunderstood something when I was a kid, and I, I always thought that the books of the New Testament was a mean song. You know how you used to sing it? And I thought it was mean to James, because for some reason that song said, he bruised James, and I could never figure out why he bruised James, and I didn't know what that was all about. So I was thinking, we probably all have a story like that, that we misunderstood uh, something in a song or something we heard one time, and then later on we found out, well, you were, you were misunderstanding what that word was about or what was being said or what was being sung. And so there's that sort of misunderstanding. We all kind of have a category for that. But there's another sort of expanding your understanding. Like, for instance, when I was 20 years old, for for instance, if you had said the word love to me, I had a concept of what love was. But that was before I was married, and that was before I had kids, and that was before I've experienced a lot of the things that I've experienced now. So would you say, well, I didn't know what love was before? That's not true. I, I knew what love was. But I have a better understanding of what love is now. And I wouldn't trade the understanding of love that I have now for the understanding of love that I had then. But that doesn't necessarily mean my understanding then was wrong. It was just incomplete and it hadn't matured. And I'm sure, I'm confident that 50 years from now, if I'm still alive, and you, you say to me, Wes, do you remember when you were 35 and you said that to the church at McDermott Road? Do you remember when you said that about love? Do, do you know more now about love than you did then? Yes, I, I do. Does that mean I don't know anything now? No, of course not. Does it mean I'm wrong? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that it's possible for us to gain a fuller and better understanding of concepts and ideas, maybe even concepts and ideas that you think that you have a really good grasp on. At 20 years old, if somebody had said to me, Wes, you don't, you don't get love. Just wait till you get married. Then you're really going to know what love, you know, if you had said that to me, I would have been offended. You know, of course I understand love, but now I understand it differently. And, and, and it, that understanding might have come better and, and quicker had I opened up myself to the possibility that maybe I have more to learn in this area. And Bible reading and Bible study is sort of that way. That if we're willing to admit the possibility, maybe there's some words and concepts, maybe even words that I I sort of take for granted, words I hear all the time, even Jesus or the cross or one we're going to talk about tonight, Gospel. I mean, we know what gospel is. What's the gospel? Gospel. Some people might say, well, it's the first four books in the New Testament. Some people might say it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and so you might have an answer for that. But is it possible that, that there's much more, much more we need to understand about a word that you've heard thousands of times and that your understanding after really digging into something, into a concept, into an idea, into a book of the Bible, might totally transform your understanding of that. 
That's my hope. But, but in order for us to accomplish that, we have to begin, I think, with the humility to say, what if? What if it, even a word like gospel? I haven't even really begun to grasp the significance of that very big and very powerful word. So we're going to do a whole lot of reading in this class because I believe that that's where the, that's where the truth is. That's where the power is. Not in anything I'm going to say, but it's in, it's in scripture. So we're going to put up scripture on the screen and hopefully you have it in your, in front of you maybe too. Also, on the screen, I'm not going to put up any verse numbers, okay? It's going to have the reference at the top, but, but no verse numbers. In my notes here, I've got it without verse numbers. I love it without verse numbers because they kind of distract me. But let's, let's start, and I want to read Romans 1, 1 through verse 17 without really stopping to comment. So just hang with me. You're lucky I'm not reading the whole book, but I won't do that, okay? So, uh, but just the first 17 verses. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith or to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Five things that I want to cover tonight about the gospel and what does that, this is a class, right? So I'm not preaching. I, I know it sounds like I'm preaching, but I'm not. But uh, so what does gospel mean? What does it mean? Good news, good news. That's exactly right. That's what it means. That's what it means. But, but it carries with it connotation, right? In every culture, um, words not only have definition, they have connotation, right? They have uh, ideas and concepts, even feelings that are associated with it. Euangelion, that's the Greek word for gospel, 
It, it, it meant something in that culture. Usually it was tied probably to kings and to battles. It was, it was tied to victories. I've said this before, but, but if somebody, uh, came running into a village or into a town yelling, Euangelion, it means a victory had been won. Maybe there was a new king. Maybe an enemy had been defeated. Maybe some, something, some people had been delivered. Some success had been achieved. Something had happened. And sometimes we sort of abbreviate the gospel. And when, when I was asked as a teenager, you know, what's the gospel? I was taught that it was 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 says that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And maybe you believe that too, and maybe that's kind of what you've always said. But did you know that's not really what 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 through 4 says? And let me read it for you real quick, because maybe somebody's saying, I don't believe you, Wes, and that's okay. Uh, but it says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is that part of what the gospel is all about? Yes, Paul says it's of first importance, and it's definitely related to the gospel. But it's not really accurate to just say, well, it's death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's part of it, and that's certainly what was done. But what did it achieve? Why is that good news? I know, now I really sound like I'm preaching. Uh, but what, what did it achieve? What, what success came because of this, right? I mean, if, if, if it's the same as somebody running into a, a town and saying, good news, and then you say, what's, what's good? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, why is that good? What does that mean? Who's Jesus? What does it mean that a guy named Jesus died and was buried and was raised? What, what does that accomplish? And that's what I want us to know. That, 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 and, and when we read the New Testament and, and it uses words like that, oftentimes Paul or the apostles or whomever kind of assume that you understand. And so when Paul says in Romans, and he says, Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. What, what is that? What is that? God's, God's gospel. God's good news. God's euangelion. Well, here's the first point, okay? Number one. The good news, Paul says, was promised by God through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse one, right? You see it with me? This good news... This particular euangelion, this particular victory, this particular success, this particular good news was promised beforehand. What does that mean, beforehand? Before what? Before it happened, right? Before before it was achieved, before the success happened, before Jesus died, before the success, whatever success came of Jesus dying and being buried and being raised from the dead, whatever success or victory came from that, it was, it was foretold. This particular good news, this particular victory, this particular success was, was what's the P word there? Promised, right? It was promised. 
this promise. And what do you do when somebody like God, because that's who's making the promise, right? This is God's gospel. God's good news that he promised. And what do you do when somebody promises you something? You, you kind of get your, your hopes up, don't you? That's what you're supposed to do. When I was a kid and mom and dad, you know, and I said, I want this for Christmas. And it kind of looked like maybe I was going to get it. I started to get my hopes up. But if they said, I promise you this is going to happen, whew, deal is, is, is made, right? I mean, it's going to happen because they promised. This is God. And this is what Romans is all about. This is what Scripture is all about. That when God makes a promise, he fulfills his promises. God does what he says he's going to do. Amen? You can say amen even if it's not preaching, right? But, uh, but so God promised beforehand through whom? The prophets. In the holy what? Scriptures. Now what do we call that part of our Bible? The Old Testament, right? The Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the prophets, who, as Peter would say, are carried along by the Holy Spirit, that through them, God promised that this particular victory was going to be won. And since he promised it, the the implication would be that his people got their hopes up, right? They had their hopes set on this thing happening. Right? He says this was promised through the apostles in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I want you to think for just a second. Because I'm going to hopefully challenge you. Maybe not. Maybe you're going to say, Wes, I know all that. That's boring. You know, whatever. But, but maybe, because a couple years ago, this would have really challenged my thinking. Because what I thought the gospel was, wasn't talked about at all in the Old Testament. I mean, have you ever sat down and just read through the Old Testament? I, that's something I'm doing this year, reading through book by book by book by book by book of the Old Testament, and now I'm on the New Testament, book by book, book, book. Sit down in one setting and read through it. And that's really surprised me. That what I thought was the gospel, like, hey, you know, repent and get baptized and go to heaven when you die. That's what I thought the gospel was all about. That's what I thought the promises were all about. And then I read through the whole Old Testament. I'm like, that doesn't really sound like that's the kind of promises that were really being made, right? And so then I kind of had to like, well, how did, how does, how do those two halves fit together? Because Paul seems to think they fit together perfectly. Paul seems to say that, that what Jesus accomplished was exactly what God promised Jesus would accomplish, right? I mean, it's like if somebody, if the runner comes back from the battle and says, good news, what the king said was going to happen, it happened just like he said it was going to happen. And then they tell you what happened, and you say, the king never said, that, that doesn't sound anything like what the king said beforehand. That doesn't sound anything like those promises. Let me challenge you. That if, if we read through the Old Testament, and we think all of these promises that keep getting made about the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to do and who the Messiah is going to be. And then we get to the New Testament, it doesn't necessarily fit together. Then, then maybe there's a problem with the way we're, 
we're trying to fit things together. So, so let, let's look at an example. Isaiah chapter 11. Here's an example. I and mean, we could go to a lot of different prophecies in the, in the Old Testament, or as Paul puts it, promises beforehand through the apostles in the Holy Scripture. And listen, listen to the kind of stuff. Because the prophets say things like, the exile is going to end because the enemies are going to be destroyed. And the knowledge and the glory of God is going to fill the earth. And there will be sort of a Garden of Eden type of peace and harmony. Look at Isaiah 11. Again, I'm, I'm just going to read the whole chapter. I, I know you get tired of hearing me read, but, but I think we've got it. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Who are we talking about? The Messiah, right? Jesus. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. With what he shall judge the poor? Righteousness. He's going to be a righteous judge. Righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity the meek for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see those words? Righteousness and equity and fairness. He's going to lift up the poor and the meek and he's going to destroy the wicked. And then he says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and and a little child shall lead them. You see the, the contrast that's working? Wolf and lamb, leopard and goat, calf and lion. And when's the last time a calf and a lion hung out together, right? The fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear, (laughs) cow and a bear, shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <laughs> the first time I read that, I read it so fast, I read over it like the waters cover the earth. That's not what it says. It says the waters cover the what? The sea. How much of the sea is covered by water? <laughs> All of it. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He'll raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. and Those who harass Judah shall be cut off. 
Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they'll plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Now, you may read that and you say, well, Wes, that's full of all kinds of figurative language. You're not really saying that Jesus is going to call, cause a bear and a cow to hang out or a lion and a goat. I mean, what are you, what are you, what are you saying? It's figurative. Of course it's, of course it's figurative, right? Of course it's figurative. It's, it's poetic. It's prophetic. It's apocalyptic. But, but, but even figurative language has a, a literal meaning, right? When I say it's raining cats and dogs outside, you, you know that has a meaning. You don't just say, well, that's just figurative. It doesn't mean anything. Of course it means something. I wouldn't say it if it doesn't mean something. And, and, and what God is saying through Isaiah, what God is promising through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures is that the Messiah would come and gather all of his people and that there would be peace and harmony that the meek and the poor will be raised up and the wicked will be destroyed and banished and that there'll be an unbelievable kind of peace and harmony, so much so that a little child could lead a a lion or a wild animal or put their hand over a, a serpent's hole or over the serpent's nest and not die. Like, like the garden, right? That God would gather up all of his people. And you might say, well, Wes, I mean, I think that's just figurative and it's talking about what happens in, in Ezra's day or in Nehemiah's day or Zerubbabel. You know, they, they brought back the remnant to Jerusalem. I mean, have you read Ezra and Nehemiah? Does that sound like what happened when a few people came back to Jerusalem? At the end of the book, we've been talking about this in my Wednesday night class. You know, they, they're pulling out their, their beard hair, even pulling out each other's hair, beating people. I mean, it's, it's not that. And besides that, who, who does he say is going to bring about, bring about this? The root of Jesse, the, the descendant of David, the Messiah. This is not Nehemiah's work. This is not Zerubbabel's work. This is not Ezra's work. This is Messiah work, right? And you say, what? 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 How? That's what Paul is saying, isn't it? When he says, he says, listen, he says, this good news, the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his apostles, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's saying that through Jesus, this is coming about peace and the knowledge of God and the destruction of the enemies of God. How, how that I'm glad you asked. That's what we're going to explore as we go through Romans. Is how did God keep those kinds of promises? Because the way I learned to read the Old Testament was, well, the, God promised all that stuff to the Jews, but they blew it. You know, they had a chance to, to get that stuff, but they blew it. And so God came and made other promises, different promises. And that's not what Paul says. 
He says the gospel is the good news that was promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, here's another thing he says about the good news in verse 16, okay? He says, this good news is the power of God for salvation. Okay, so if I haven't totally mixed you up yet, let me try try harder, okay? So, just, just kidding. Um, so when, when I read salvation, I usually think forgiveness, right? Forgiveness. Now, is forgiveness tied to salvation in Scripture? Sure, absolutely. But, but I think... I think that it's not really the same connotation. But, but we kind of make them synonymous. I was thinking about kind of a silly example. Like if, if you were to say to somebody, hey, don't worry, the police are coming, they'll save you. That has one implication, right? If I said, hey, don't worry, the police are coming, they'll forgive you. That's different, isn't it? If I say, the police will save you, what does that imply? That implies you're, you're trapped. You're, something, something is trapping you. Something's holding you. When I say save you, that, that, that's synonymous with deliver or rescue. And did you listen when, when we were reading in Isaiah chapter 11? That's exactly the kind of language that Isaiah is using about the promises that God is making to his people. Now, does that include forgiveness? Yes. Because what's it going to take for the people of Israel who are dispersed and taken off into Assyrian captivity and later into Babylonian captivity and they're exiled away from God and where God wants them to be in order for them to have a highway from Assyria back into the presence of God just like when they were delivered, rescued, and saved from Egypt, and they came into the promised land, that that sort of deliverance after the exile is going to take forgiveness. But, but, But I think when we read salvation, that this is the power of God for salvation. Yes, 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 yes. I'm not saying forgiveness, that's not part of it. It absolutely is. You need forgiveness, but it's more than that. Because it's, it's more than that. There are forces of darkness and evil that are at play here. And if we don't understand that at the beginning of the book of Romans, we'll never understand the book of Romans. In fact, if we don't understand that at the beginning of starting to read the, the New Testament, we won't understand it. See, they, they were thinking Assyria and Rome and Babylon and Greece. I mean, these were the enemies. And it's true, they were. They were enemies. If you'd ever been oppressed under a horrible regime or empire, you'd know there's no sugarcoating it. These are enemies. But there's a force, power of darkness and evil that are even behind them. And even the people that that work for them, even the Romans themselves, the Greeks themselves, the Assyrians themselves, the Babylonians themselves, the Jews themselves, they're all slaves, trapped, exiled, banished. And yes, they need forgiveness, that's part of it. But they need deliverance. They need rescue. They need a savior. 
They need somebody to come in and defeat the enemies and deliver them out of where they are into where they need to be. So implied in all of that promise language of Garden of Eden language, all of this restoration and rescue and redemption language is salvation language, deliverance language, rescue language. And I'm afraid we've sort of let that kind of slip out of our Christian vocabulary, haven't we? Because we've just made it about forgiveness. And we tell people, hey, listen, you did bad stuff. Jesus died for you so you can get forgiven and go to heaven someday. And that's sort of how we've, I think, kind of watered down the gospel. And all of that is, is it's true in a sense, but, but it's bigger than that. It's more than that. And it'll make you fall in love with who Jesus is and the promises God's made to his people and the fact that he wants you to be a part of his people for whom this is happening currently and will continue to happen and there is a culmination of all of this in the future. Look at verse or point number three. So the good news was promised by God through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's number one. Number two, the good news is the power of God for salvation, God's power to save us. Uh, and then number three, this good news means salvation for everyone who has faith, right? That's what he says. Everyone who has faith, the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Now, this is the part that's a bit surprising, isn't it? For the Jew. They, they always knew, always expected that the Messiah would come and bring about their deliverance and their restoration, would defeat their enemies and, and bring them into the promised land, would bring about resurrection eventually on the, on the final day at the end of the age. They, they knew that. They believed that that was going to happen. Now, how he was going to accomplish that, that was surprising. That was scandalous, in fact. How he's going to accomplish that is not by killing Romans, It's by allowing Romans to kill him and becoming a sin offering. That's how he's going to accomplish it. And then he he calls his armies to do the same thing. Take up your cross and follow me. And we'll read in Romans 12 that that's how we overcome evil with good. (laughs) And, And I know that's shocking. We'll get to that later. But so, so, so that's, but what, what's, what's really shocking about the whole thing is that this promise of rescue and deliverance and salvation, this power of God that's going to bring people out of darkness and into the kingdom, bring about resurrection on the final day, it's for Jews and who? Greeks, Gentiles, everyone who has Faith. Now, that's kind of, that's kind of shorthand, right? I mean, faith, I mean, faith in what? Faith in who? What kind of faith, right? I mean, it's kind of shorthand. But he's going to explain all throughout this book what exactly that means and what exactly that looks like and what that means for every single person who hears it and understands it and embraces it. What it means that God keeps his promises and that God has kept his promise and everything he's done through Jesus, he promised to do. And what he's bringing about through Jesus is exactly what he said he would do, that this good news means salvation for everyone who has faith, the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Number four, in this good news, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, here's where it gets really good. I like this. Verse 17. In this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, we understand maybe righteousness has to do with justice. So the the gospel, the good news, reveals God's justice, reveals God's righteousness. And when I think about God being righteous, I think about, like, anger, don't you? Like, God's angry and God's mad and God punishes. And so I tend to think, well, how does the gospel reveal God's righteousness? Well, because Jesus was punished. There's probably part of that that's true, but but look at everything he's saying here. Look at what Isaiah 11 had said. Do you remember what Isaiah 11 said about the Messiah? Did it use righteousness language? Yeah. Was it about punishing evildoers? Yes. But what else was it about? It said in, in righteousness, the Messiah will judge not by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He's not going to look at sort of surface level stuff. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't judge by appearances. Judge with righteous judgment. You got it. But with righteousness, he shall judge thee. Do you remember? poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The righteousness of God isn't just that he punishes evil. The righteousness of God is that he rescues. The righteousness of God is that he has mercy. The righteousness of God is he looks deep down at people and that God is a rescuer and a saver and a victor. It is good news, isn't it? And it's also good news that God punishes the wicked. Who wants to live in a world where the wicked can just do whatever the wicked want to do and and never answer for their crimes? How How do we tell people, listen, do good to your enemies. Love those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. Overcome evil, not with evil, but with good. And, you know, I just, and that's the it. That's it. There's nothing ever going to happen. No. God settles everything. The Messiah settles everything. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The good news of Jesus and everything Jesus is and everything Jesus does and his reign and his rule over the earth, everything Jesus spoke when he condemned evil and he condemned hypocrisy and he condemned sexual immorality and he condemned hating and he condemned killing and he condemned all the things he condemned and he he blessed and he lifted up the poor and the hungry and the broken and the oppressed and he forgave people and he had mercy and he brought people. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus accomplished and his sacrificial death to make atonement for those that wanted to be where God is. It reveals that God is a righteous God. God is a keeper of promises. When God says, I will save you. And then you wait, and you wait, 
And you wait, and it seems like the evil just get more evil, and the wicked get more wicked, and the wicked and evil get more strong, and they just do more evil and wicked things, and you say, where are you, God? And then you die. And you say, does God really keep his promises? And the answer is yes. And in the gospel of Jesus, the righteousness that God really is righteous His righteousness is revealed. Because Jesus says that on the last day, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked. Those who are in a right relationship with God, those who had faith, who trusted, who believed, in spite of the way things looked, in spite of the way things felt, in spite of the fact that it looks like evil's winning, The people who had faith will live. Isn't that what Jesus said? He says, if you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live. God will raise those who trust in him from the dead. Right? Those who have faith will live. Why? Because how good they are? No, because God is what? Righteous. God is righteous. God keeps his promises. And that's what Jesus coming and making atonement for everybody's sins. That's what that's all about. That God is a God of judgment. But God is also a God of mercy. Oh, I went over time. I promised my wife I wouldn't do it. So we, we're out of time. If you, got, if you got kids in class, you got to go pick them up. We're going to pick up their... Two weeks. Matt next week is going to pick up there, and then uh, a couple weeks we'll, 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 I'll be back and we'll go from there. So if you got, if you got kids, go pick them up. If you don't, we're going to sing another song, and, and then we'll have a prayer before we close. Thank you all.